0: This week on The Back Table Podcast.
1: One of the things research is showing, like putting a little surgical tape right across your mouth at night, just freeing up a little bit on the side, changes the way we breathe into nasal breathing, right? Nasal breathing changes immediately, almost within like five to ten days. You'll see shifts in a dry mouth going into a more lubricated mouth and also reducing chances of sleep apnea because of that, because the tongue sits at a higher position now.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Backtable ENT podcast. My name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric ENT, and I am here today with my favorite general ENT and partner in crime, Dr. Ashley Agan. How are you today,
2: Ash? Hey there. Good morning, Gopi. I'm wonderful and always happy to be doing a podcast
0: with you on a Sunday morning. So on a Sunday morning. That's how we get our week started. That's right. That's right. Let's do it. Well, we are back with our dynamic dental duo. We have Dr. Abhishek Nagaraj and Dr. Anushka Gaglani. Both are practicing general dentists with a focus on comprehensive dentistry from dental implants to cosmetic dentistry. They are also co-CEOs and co-founders of Ario Dental Group, which is a multi-practice dental partnership organization that focuses on providing stellar patient experience through same-day comprehensive care and education, as well as improving care, collaboration, and practice efficiency on the doctor side. And they were on the Backtable ENT podcast for an episode on the role of dentistry and head and neck cancer patients. So please check that out. And they are here to talk to us today about xerostomia and the role of the dentist. Welcome back to the show, guys. Thank you, guys. Very happy to be here.
1: Thanks for having us back.
0: So for listeners
2: who haven't already listened to our last podcast, maybe it'd be good to still kind of give us a brief description of yourselves and your practice just to kind of set the stage and give us a little background.
1: We are the co-founders of Aereo Dental Group. Aereo Dental Group is a group practice dental partnership organization. We partner with doctors, we ramp them up, we hire new grad doctors and create badass GPs, general practice dentists over a three to five year timeframe. Our core focus is stellar same day, comprehensive care through education. This is seventh year in a row for us. And, you know, we've gone on to open six dental practices and we plan on expanding our footprint a little bit further. We're we're in two states, Illinois and Indiana. Anushka, if you want to add something to that.
3: We've been on the Inc. 5000 a couple of times, if that can help. So look us up. But aside from that, no, our passion just lies in helping dentists be autonomous and keep dentistry in the hands of dentists.
0: That's awesome. I feel like we need more of that as well on the medical physician side of it, too. Well, today we're going to talk about xerostomia,
3: dry mouth.
0: How do these patients present to you? Is there like a common age or risk factor that you've noticed in your practice?
3: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many ways that they can present to us. We have patients who come in at any age, really. More likely, it's patients who are older. I think the statistic is that 30% of patients over the age of 65 and 40% of patients over the age of 80 usually have zero stoma, and it's usually due to medications. Usually, it's four or more medications that really increase that risk but also comorbid conditions like diabetes, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, etc. But there's such limited data on xerostomia, it's anywhere between 0.9% to 64.8% of the population who suffers from it, which is such a wide range. In our experience, it's definitely, though, again, those older patients or lifestyle factors, which we'll obviously dig deeper into.
1: Yeah. And some of the non-medication, to Anushka's point, is things like people who are mouth breathers, right? Or they don't hydrate enough, obviously don't drink enough fluids. So those are some of the more common Mm -hmm. non-medication related. Alcohol, smoking, caffeine. Mm -hmm.
3: And so when
2: you're doing your kind of initial intake and a patient's like, oh, yeah, you know, I just have terrible dry mouth. Can you help me out with this? Are there specific questions like screening that you're asking about. Can you kind of take us through what that their initial kind of history taking looks like before we talk about physical exam?
3: Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about their lifestyle factors, right? Like we mentioned earlier, are they staying hydrated? Are they keeping their oral hygiene kind of up to par? Are they alcohol users? Do they smoke? Do they drink a lot of caffeine? All of these are going to be lifestyle factors. We also will look at any medications and like I mentioned earlier, comorbid factors. So medications like antihistamines, antihypertensive, decongestants, pain meds, Mm -hmm. um, diuretics, antidepressants. These are going to be kind of like those bigger risk factors. So we'll look for those things first. A lot of people will think that they have dry mouth, but really they don't. So what we do is we check for any salivary pooling on the floor of the mouth. There is a salivary flow rate test that can be done as well. And what we check for is is either reduced, unstimulated flow, which has to be, I believe it's 0.1 milliliters per Per minute minute of Mm -hmm. flow. And that's measured over a five to 15 minute period. Or in chewing, it has to be at least 0.7 milliliters per minute or more to not have reduced salivary flow. And that's checked over five minutes. The last thing we would do really, if we see that someone is not pulling saliva or that if they have reduced salivary flow, we can actually also do a minor salivary gland biopsy. And by we, I don't mean the general dentist. We would refer out to an oral surgeon, oral medicine practitioner, or an ENT in that case.
1: Yeah, no, those are great points. Generally, people with dry mouth or xerostomia will present with thick, stringy saliva, right? That's usually generally a really good sign. That's where we start to kind of decipher whether it's really Mm -hmm. lifestyle-related or dig deeper. They will also present with a lot of dental caries. Uh, Rampant caries, we could be doing a bunch of work on them and six months later, they have like these whole mouth full of new cavities as though we never saw them.
3: Yeah, and especially root caries. So when their gums are receded, they have it at the root or the cervical portion, which is where the root ends. And the coronal portion of the tooth meat is where we'll usually see it. Right.
2: And so backing up a little bit, so you've got patients who you're trying to decipher, do they truly have dry mouth and an issue with either producing their saliva or the amount, or do they have the sensation of dry mouth? Because those are gonna lead you down two different pathways. And then with looking at your lifestyle types of contributions, so how, when you talk about staying hydrated, how much is appropriate? Because I think people will quickly say like, I drink plenty of water, or they are quick to say, oh yeah, I'm in with oral hygiene, What is the appropriate oral hygiene? Yeah, I brush my teeth. It's fine. Do you get into like, okay, but are you doing it to this extent? And what level is that threshold where it's like, this is the amount of water you need to drink every day?
1: (laughs) Generally, I want to say I I can totally relate with that because I used to be one of those guys. So I'm like, yeah, I drink enough water. Why do I wake up with a little bit of a dry mouth? I'm also a little bit of a mouth breather. Generally, I want to say minimally 60 to 65 ounces a day. You want to be hydrating with that. Anything less than that is not enough. Also, I think from an oral hygiene perspective, I think at least brushing at the minimum morning and night, right? Generally now the ADA, the American Association of Periodontics is saying three times a day, right? Because plaque builds up as soon as we brush immediately, like it starts to build right away twice a day with some good at least flossing regimen like four to five times a week. Those are the things that we can control.
3: You know, as far as staying hydrated too, I I do have patients say, but I drink a lot of, you know, X whatever the processed canned drink of choices. And I'm like, no, it's got to be, you have to really have water. And then also things with caffeine and sugar obviously are not going to help the problem. So we want to stay away from those kind of things. But that brushing, like Abhishek said, that oral hygiene is going to be key as well. If they're truly is dry mouth. There are some other palliative things that can be done, but but those are a couple of the bigger ones.
1: Yeah. And we could certainly hit on those palliative things later down this podcast. Yep.
0: In terms of medications, Anisha, you had mentioned four or more medications. Is it four or more of the medications that have the side effects of dry mouth or is that what you had meant with that?
3: Yeah, it's a combination of medications, of really any four medications that can cause that, but it's obviously intensified with those particular ones that are related to dry mouth.
1: I think standalone can do it too. Like a standalone lisinopril for hypertensives has one of the side effects as dry mouth, right? But just combination drug therapy just exacerbates that condition.
2: Okay. So you ask about kind of like the different lifestyle things, you know, are you drinking enough water? Are you a mouth breather? Are you drinking a lot of coffee? Those types of things. And then you're looking at their medication list. And then you let's say you're, you mark off. so Okay, this could be causing it. This could be causing it. You're going down. And then any other types of screening questions when it comes to the other types of things that can cause dry mouth. So thinking of things like Sjogren's or history of radiation or the other types of things that don't fit into the other boxes.
3: Yeah, for sure. You know, we're looking at at chemo as well. We're looking at radiation. Um, We're looking at autoimmune disease, as you mentioned, uh, Sjogren's disease. That definitely plays a big role, right? Lacrimal ducts as well. And then radioactive iodine. So if anyone's gone through thyroid treatments, that's something else we would ask about because that does affect it. And especially the parotid gland is where it would affect it. And that's going to be the major salivary producer.
1: Right. Ashley, I'm glad you bring that up because I think the first two lines of questioning with the lifestyle and the medication stuff, most people will fall in those two, right? But it's that third line of questioning, which is then like, hey, have any recent history of radiation treatment or Sjogren's, right? Because generally that has some dry eyes type symptoms too. So that would be our third line of questioning for sure.
2: And then just moving on, on your physical exam, you mentioned a little bit that these patients might have more dental caries more often because of not having that saliva to kind of protect against that. And then you also mentioned about salivary pooling and the testing for the flow rate. Can you talk a little bit about other things you see on exam and then how how
0: is that flow rate test done? Because you're talking about 0.1 ml and like 0.7 ml. For how do you measure that volume? Is there a, like a litmus paper or something?
1: So generally, you have them suck on like some type of a lozenge. Could be like a lemon. And then it literally, you're going to spit into like a pipette or something over a five minute period. Oh. It's, it's a very physical test. So that's generally, but it's also the easiest way to test uh salivary flow rate.
0: Interesting. So if they can spit out 0.1 ml in a pipette, they probably have a little bit more than that, right? That they're able to produce. So that's probably a good sign.
1: Yes. Yes. Generally people with like all the existing conditions that we talked about are going to be in that 0.1 to 0.2. That's generally a good sign that they suffer from xerostomia. Ah, okay.
2: How often are you using that test? Is that a more kind of academic research thing to kind of give you some objective measures, or is that something that you actually use frequently in your workup?
3: Yeah, to be honest, we don't, we don't really use mm-hmm. it. It is more on the academic side, but that's just basically what the numbers come down to.
2: Anything else that you're seeing on the physical exam that tips you off to what could be going on?
3: Yeah, I mean, so just how it presents, right? It's dry mouth, difficulty chewing, difficulty swallowing.
1: Burning, um, soreness. Burning,
3: burning dry mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, halitosis, angular colitis, which is the cracking on the corners of the lips, a dry, rough fissure tongue.
1: Candidiasis. Um,
3: yep. Hoarseness, halitosis. And then another thing, patients that wear dentures or partial dentures, if it's ill-fitting or if they have difficulty retaining because that it requires some level of suction. So that's how we would know, too, that they're, they're struggling with that as well.
1: One of the things I would say is just people when they wear dentures, right, they come with a lot of expectations. You add dry mouth xerostomia to that, oh my God, it is a really challenging thing because every other day patients will present to us saying it hurts me here or it hurts me here and there's a lot of sores in their mouth. So as a clinician, it can be super challenging to deal with patients that have both dry mouth and a denture wear at the same time.
0: Are they higher risk to sores as well and irritation and rubbing and all that?
1: Absolutely. You, can, you get a completely red palate and then lots of sores. They're really miserable.
2: Once you've kind of determined, let's say we're kind of going to focus on the patient who truly does have xerostomia and not necessarily the patient who has that sensation of dry mouth, because that's probably that's opening up a whole other conversation. But So patients who we've determined truly have xerostomia, they're not making enough saliva. How do you start to treat that, especially when you have patients who are on a lot of medications that you maybe can't tinker with or mess with? You can't say like, OK, well, let's just stop all your medications because, you know, we want your saliva to come back. I feel like that's kind of one of the hardest things that I deal with. It's like trying to decide, is it the medication and how do we treat this? Because some patients will say, well, I've been on this medication for 15 years and now I'm having dry mouth. Like, it's probably not the medication,
1: right? It's tough navigating that it is hard. Two lines of treatment. One is obviously symptomatic. How do we get people to feel better and manage their symptoms? That would be palliative. Things like ACT lozenges, biotene lozenges, mouthwash. Generally, these mouthwashes have xylitol in them. And they also have some sodium monofluorophosphate, I want to say. And then um, sodium benzoates that make it generally easier for them to swish and make it really foamy for patients, right? That that would be palliative. And Uh, then
3: sugar-free gums, candies, avoiding salty, spicy. Dry, Mm -hmm. sticky, sugary foods, right? Because obviously with less saliva as a buffer, they're more prone to the caries. Avoiding irritants like alcohol, mouth rinses, tobacco, caffeine.
1: Mm -hmm. Those
3: are going to be more on the palliative side. And then, of course, there's a medication side.
1: On the medication side, I mean, inducing saliva, right? Because obviously a lot of these patients who suffer from xerostomia have anticholinergic drugs that are interacting with their acetylcholine receptors. So we want to get acetylcholine inducers like pilocarpine. Pilocarpine, cevimeline is another one that's being hydrochloride. hydrochloride that's that's being used to induce some salivary flow. Sugar-free lozenges, I mean obviously is like a common go-to for most patients, but those are the more extreme cases and especially people with Sjögren's disease or autoimmune conditions.
0: In terms of those medications, how do you prescribe them? On the pee side, this is something I don't always see very often and I don't I've never prescribed uh, pilocarpine before.
3: Mm-hmm. So the pylocarbon, usually we would do five milligrams a day, three times a day, and that would be for about three months. And then mm-hmm. the simolean hydrochloride would be about 30 milligrams a day and also for three months.
2: Would that theoretically work for any of these dry mouth patients? Depending on what their pathophysiology is, is it possible that that would not work as well?
3: Yeah, I would say, you know, obviously in cases with something like radiation therapy, which can cause permanent damage to the salivary glands, I would imagine it would be a little bit tougher for that to work Mm -hmm. because it has to stimulate the saliva and they're already damaged. But also we'd want to look at any other medication that the patient is taking because these do have their own side effects, sweating, dilation of the vessels, hypotension, bradycardia, bronchoconstriction, things like that. But theoretically, yes, and in most cases where there's not damage of the glands, it should work.
2: Got you. So for maybe for your patient who's had radiation or your patient with Sjogren's, you might counsel them like, you know, the underlying issue is that the salivary glands are not actually able to make the saliva. So if we stimulate them This may be low yield to try this, but maybe you could try it, but it may not work very well.
3: Exactly correct. Correct.
1: For those patients,
3: unfortunately, it's going to be mostly palliative.
1: It generally works well for chemo patients, right, because there isn't a whole lot of irreversible tissue damage. It's more the tissues that are able to heal themselves over time. So chemo patients will react well to these medications.
2: Going back to the workup, we kind of skipped over. I I meant to ask, is there any other lab work or imaging or anything else that's done after a physical exam and before treatment?
1: Mm, That's a good question. Generally, when they come to the dentist, we're we're sticking to a panoramic x-ray, right? A pantomograph and a full set of x-rays that includes bite wings. Generally, they don't give a whole lot of information on salivary glands, unfortunately. We're not generally doing any more x-rays or scans of that nature for these patients. Generally, it's that lifestyle questioning and then medication-related questioning in order for us to probe that further. A lot of times when we think as general dentists we can't handle the severity or the complexity of that condition, we are generally going to refer them to an oral surgeon or an oral pathologist who could probably do some biopsy, to Anushka's point earlier.
3: And they might be able to do an MRI or or something that would show the soft tissue as well to see Mm -hmm. if there's any damage.
0: Ash, do you ever get labs or anything like that for these patients?
2: I wouldn't say that I routinely get labs for everybody. I mean, sometimes if we're thinking about Sjogren's, I might get some labs to check for those antibodies, but not always. I mean, most, a lot of the time, patients will be sent to me for that lip biopsy. So maybe they're seeing somebody else for it. And part of that workup, someone has said, well, maybe it would be helpful to get that lip biopsy to solidify whether this is or is not Sjogren's. And so I would say that's
0: probably the most common thing. It reminds me of our kids with hearing loss. You know, we don't just get a set of labs anymore. You kind of want it targeted. And it sounds like for xerostomia, you want to have an idea of what you're looking for, as opposed to just, we check for diabetes, for Sjogren's, you know, through lab work, because what are you going to do with that? And And you still might miss what's actually going on. Yeah, I think it can be really challenging, especially because some patients will have multiple reasons
2: to have dry mouth. So you're going through the list and they check off some of the boxes for the lifestyle. They check off some of the boxes for the medication. And so you're thinking, well, what angle are we going to use to try to treat this and make it better? And I think we, on at least in my world with general ENT, sometimes I forget about the complications when it comes to dental hygiene with having dry mouth. Because it's like when patients are using these kind of lubricants to help with the symptoms, I assume that doesn't actually help with the prevention of caries, though, does it? Because it's not actually saliva or how does that work out?
3: To some extent, it may because it does have calcium phosphate ions in it and that that kind of helps remineralize. So to some extent, yes, it will. And it will act as a buffer as well. But again, it's more topical. It's unfortunately not going to be systemic.
1: The biotin mouthwashes have some fluoride in them. They're Mm -hmm. like sodium fluorides. Those are really, I I won't say they're really effective. They're somewhat effective. Yeah.
3: I was going to say the fluoride is really a big piece to that. A lot of these artificial salivas don't have that. But if it's possible, I would definitely recommend that along with like a fluoride gel, just going back to the importance of fluoride, fluoride gel, and even making sure we're getting that systemic fluoride through fluoridated tap water.
1: I also think it's a great idea for people suffering from dry mouth to come get their cleanings like four times a year. Six months, again, is not enough because we could detect a lot more caries earlier on. They can come in more frequently. Yeah, Mm -hmm. because it does progress quickly.
0: Does dental insurance cover that for the patients that are higher risk for caries? The radiated patients, the patients that have Sjogren's and serostomia, do you know once
3: you've had that condition, does the dental insurance cover an extra cleaning It depends on the insurance company, unfortunately. It depends on the plan that they have. We have seen a lot of plans allow three to four cleanings a year, but it really kind of depends on their plan. They'd have to kind of check on that.
0: And in terms of fluoride, are mouthwashes like the over-counter act, are those enough? Are those as helpful as the gel or is that all over-the-counter as well?
3: So the gel, no, the gel and the prescription toothpaste like Prevident 5000 is an example. Those are going to have a much higher part per million of fluoride. So those would be more recommended. The -the over-the-counter is just going to be a lot, lot lower. That's more for like your healthy patient. We would definitely want to talk about prescription level at that point.
1: I think, yeah, to your point, mild xerostomia cases will be okay with ACT and biotin. Over time, they'll kind of learn to live with that and make that work for them. The more severe cases, I think, need a little more intervention for sure.
2: So it sounds like it's really important to make sure these patients are following with their dentist regularly. And that may be something that I haven't been as good about in the past to make sure the patients are aware of the possible dental repercussions of having xerostomia. Because I think a lot of them come in and it's the discomfort and the symptoms that they're experiencing that we kind of are focused on. But it sounds like it's also just important from a dental health long term to make sure that I'm asking, okay, do you have a dentist? And when was the last time you saw them? And let's make sure that you're staying on top of this, because now that we know this, you are at higher risk of having long-term complications from not having enough saliva, basically.
1: Yeah, I think that would be super helpful. The other piece of this is psychological, right? If patients came in six months ago and they were diagnosed with seven cavities, they come back six months later, we tell them, hey, you have seven more cavities. Patients are like, what the hell? We just got all these fillings done. You're telling me I have seven more? So, yes, that would be super helpful just from a medical dental perspective.
3: Yeah. And yeah. I think as we discussed last time, right, for some reason, people still tend to think that the mouth is not part of the body. So we want them to kind of relate that that you are going to have yeah. these other issues. And of course, the main things that can affect the body, too, are going to be the dysphagia and dysfusia. I don't know if this is a good
0: time to kind of ask, but y'all had kind of touched upon the sensation of dry mouth versus really having xerostomia or a decreased salivary flow. Can we dig into that a little? Would this be a good point to kind of dig into? Sure. Yeah. Who are the patients that just present with the sensation and how does that happen? And is the treatment or the way in which you counsel those patients similar?
1: Those patients generally, our first line of questioning to reiterate would be lifestyle, right? How much coffee are they drinking? How much tobacco are they chewing or smoking? What does their hydration look like on a daily basis? Do they
3: drink alcohol pretty frequently? Is it more infrequent? Correct. And then do they stay hydrated as well during that time?
1: Right. Depending on these answers, if their answer is yes to every one of these, it's generally like counseling and saying, hey, if you don't do these things, you potentially have a chance in the future to have reduced salivary flow, which can turn to dental caries and you spending a lot of time and money at the dentist. So that's the educational piece. The second line would be obviously the medication induced, what medications they're on, what medical conditions and comorbidities they have. Depending on that, then we would try to work with their physician to see if tweaks can be made with their medication regimen, whether can they go on like a standalone drug as opposed to multiple drugs for the same condition. So those are things that we get involved in if the dry mouth is much more severe. And the third line is when patients present to us after a chemo or radiation. The chemo and the radiation, those are more complex cases, and especially it gets more intensified when patients have prosthesis in their mouth, like dentures and partials. And now they're really struggling to keep them in because they get sores all over the place. They need a lot more care in those cases. So in these cases, we will then work with their physician and or the oral surgeon and the oral pathologist to see if there is drugs that patients can be prescribed to actually induce salary flow like pilocarpine and drugs of that nature.
0: So the sensation of dry mouth, whether the patient actually has decreased salivary flow or not, to me, it sounds like it doesn't really matter the fact that they have the sensation of dry mouth.
3: It's the same sort of workup questioning treatment options. I think I would say the treatment options may differ. Obviously, you know, if if there's mm-hmm. something medication related or chemo, et cetera, that would be a totally different set of treatment than it would be if it's the sensation. The sensation is going to be Stop smoking or stop drinking alcohol or, yeah. you know, reduce your caffeine. Let's use uh, artificial saliva or a lubricant. Another thing is with the mouth breathing, right? Let's check for sleep apnea. Let's figure out why you're mouth breathing. Things of that nature, it's going to be more, again, palliative versus someone that's actually got an underlying condition.
1: Yeah, a point about mouth breathing, I'm passionate about this because I've been a mouth breather myself for quite a few years. I was always waking up with a little bit of a dry mouth. One of the things research is showing, like putting a little surgical tape right across your mouth at night, just freeing up a little bit on the side, changes the way we breathe into nasal breathing, right? Nasal breathing changes immediately, almost within like five to 10 days. You'll see shifts in a dry mouth going into a more lubricated mouth and also reducing chances of sleep apnea because of that, because the tongue sits at a higher position now. So it's crazy how interconnected all these things are.
2: Yeah, it all goes back to the unfortunate circumstances of medical and dental being separate instead of us all kind of being under one, you know. And so after you guys, let's say you have the patient, this happens every once in a while where you have just a difficult case and the patient has come back and they're like, I quit smoking. I don't drink alcohol. I don't drink any caffeine. You know, I've done all the things. And they're still having problems with dry mouth. You've ruled out Sjogren's. At that point, is there a particular specialist that you like to refer these patients to to kind of pick it up from there? Because things have just gotten kind of complicated or maybe there's some rare zebra condition that you're not sure about.
3: Honestly, my specialist of choice at that point would be an oral medicine specialist. They can really kind of dig deep into what else is going on.
1: Yeah, oral pathologist is also my number one go-to, oral medicine oral pathologist.
3: And for those of us who
2: just aren't as familiar with that realm, can you tell us more about, you know, what is the difference between dentistry and oral medicine, oral pathologists? Like, what does that training pathway look like? Is that like a fellowship out of dentistry, like they've done dental school and then more? Or what is their area of expertise?
3: That's exactly it. They go to a couple more years of school. Some of them may receive a PhD, so it's going to take a little bit longer than that. And that's all they do is they kind of focus on these, as you mentioned, these conditions and zebra conditions that we may not have as much training on. Correct.
2: Okay. And so if you are an ENT and you're looking for someone to kind of help with maybe an oral pathologist or oral medicine doctor to refer to, are these doctors usually associated with a dental school or how would you find somebody if you didn't already have that relationship?
1: Absolutely. No, you nailed it. It's generally you want to pick the biggest dental school that's in your vicinity. And usually dental schools have a full blown department for oral medicine, radiology and pathology. That is generally where we refer these patients to because they can receive the multidisciplinary care that they deserve at that point.
2: Yeah, perfect. I think that's really helpful because sometimes you just get to the end of the line and you say, we've tested for everything I know to test for and I don't know what I can do. You know, we need to get another set of eyes on you and get a different perspective at this point.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes.
0: How do you guys follow these patients? What's your follow up?
1: Generally, our follow-ups are when people are presenting with more than mild dry mouth, we want to see them every three months. It's not as frequent as two weeks, especially if they have a precancerous condition. It's not as bad. So generally, we want to get them back in three months to see how they feel by making these lifestyle changes. One of the simplest things that people can do is hydrate more. 60 to 70 ounces of water a day will really start to make them feel better.
3: As far as follow up, that's exactly it. It's not going to be super frequent, but we do want to see them more regularly than we would someone with healthy salivary flow. Because I think the main thing, again, when it comes down to dentistry is catching that caries before it starts to cause major issues. And Mm. that's going to require more frequent follow up. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think we could all drink more water. Thank you guys so much for taking the time today. We appreciate you coming on. It was great to see you again and chat with you again. And for those who haven't listened to our previous podcast, I want to make sure and give you a chance to tell our listeners about where they can find you, where you are on social media, your website for your dental practice.
1: Yeah, our website is www.aeriodental.com. That's the parent organization. And then all our portfolio practices are listed under that. Truebluedentistry.com, blueislandsmiles.com, stjohnsmiles.com and stagersmiles.com and blueislandsmiles.com. Yeah, blue blue is <laughs> so we're in the south suburb of Illinois and northwest Indiana. We have also have a LinkedIn page with Aerodental Group where we yeah. try to post meaningful content for listeners and viewers. We also have an Instagram page on Aerodental. We also have personal Instagram handles. I'm Dr. Dentagram. and I'm you-
3: Dr. on Toothpreneur. And then we're also on LinkedIn. Uh I love those. It's so cool. (laughs) Well, thank you guys so much for a dry topic.
0: It was actually very interesting. I learned a ton. Thank Thank you you for taking the time. No, thank you guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan.
1: Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from
3: Taylor's version Hess, and Yvonne Overjinsky.
0: Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jamila Kennebrew. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.